electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome, everybody. Here's what's ahead this hour. Investors are battling it out for control of this market. And despite warnings from some high-profile investors this week, Bank of America is saying, don't worry, the bull market is still alive and well. Are they right? As the market weakens a bit this afternoon, we will definitely ask. Plus, a record number of Americans could be saving as much as $500 a month on their mortgages. But many aren't yet. We'll tell you why and if you're in that camp. And maybe working from home isn't the future. Peloton does ride higher. Grocery stores could be a thing of the past and doubling down on Tesla. All of that's coming up. But let's begin with today's markets to close out this pretty wild week. Dom Chu here with the numbers. That's a lot of stuff you guys are going to cover in rapid fire today. My my head is exploding right now with the number of things that we have to go over. But now let's talk about the markets. They are mixed, like Kelly said, to close out a fairly volatile week. Now, the gains and losses that we've seen have been roller coaster-ish, but generally speaking, it still has been a pullback from those record highs. The Dow Industrial standing out today up about 80 points off, well off its session highs so far, and lows as well in the middle of a range. But you can see here the Nasdaq again pacing the declines down by 1%, a trade we continue to watch now below that 11,000 mark. If you take a look at this week, amidst the roller coaster, you might be surprised, actually, yes, that the S&P 500 is lower on the week, but that the best performing sector, believe it or not, is materials, up about 1% so far from a sector basis, and the worst performing is energy. Those two sectors typically get lumped together in terms of performance, but in this case scenario, very different, a very interesting move here with the sectors so far this week. And to top it all off, we've been talking so much about these technology and cloud names that have benefited from work from home and stay at home. Let's talk about some of the other names that have flown under the radar in the large cap Russell 1000, the best performers on a one week basis among them. Uber. We haven't talked about that in a while. Up 11 percent. Under Armour, Athletic Apparel, up 6 percent. And then Boston Beer, Sam Adams. They also make Truly Seltzer up 4 percent. So some of the names we don't often talk about with regard to outperforming have done so in a down tape this week, Kelly. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Tom. Thank you very much, sir. Now, the correction he talked about that's played out over the past two weeks is putting the Dow and S&P about 6 to 7% below their highs. The Nasdaq is down more than 10%, and it's on pace for its worst week since March. Despite these losses, Bank of America is saying that investors are enduring a normal correction and the bull market is alive and well. With me now to talk more about that, Michael Cugino is Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds President, and Randall Ely is President of the Edgar Lomax Company. It's great to have you both here. Randall, I'll start with you. Are you still uh, optimistic about this market? Uh, I wouldn't use the word optimistic in the short term, but in the long term, I am. Um, I'm not a technician, so I won't even try to project what the market is going to do over the next month, um, uh, et cetera. But given the low level of interest rates we have, this market can do much better than you'd normally assume for some time to come. So you are in the camp, Randall, that says low interest rates mean higher stock price valuations. But have we done that? Is that a one-time reset or does it keep resetting? So in other words, okay, we've reset stock prices for a 10-year at 0.7%, but does it have to keep going down for the market to keep climbing or not? 
Somewhere along the way, it would have to. And of course, it can't keep going down. I would go so far as to say that eventually interest rates must go up. And that's the reason we are so um, uh, so focused on buying value stocks that we think will be able to stand up well in a really tough market environment. Yeah, well, you have to be a brave man to do that right now because it has not <laughs> been the best uh, time for value stocks, but that's what, what would make yes. value investors e more interested. Yes, either brave or glutton for punishment. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Maybe both. Uh, let me turn, Michael Cugino, to you and, and ask if you would echo those thoughts about the kinds of stocks that you'd be picking in this market and if you agree that uh, the bull market is still intact. I agree with Bank of America, that is. I do. And I think this is healthy. This is normal in a bull market. Um, and I, you know, we could even go down a little bit more from here, say another 10%. But I think as long as the, the economy recovers, um, whether it's gradual or gains momentum, I think as long as people get back to work, consumers spend, and obviously this is not happening at the moment, but we are gaining some momentum with economic growth. Hopefully that continues as we come out of COVID. Then I think that provides some economic support. The cost of capital is cheap. Um, as was mentioned, so that, that bodes well for equities going forward. And you could get back some of that multiple expansion that you lost uh, recently here. The other thing, I think, is that the, the rally broadens out. It does get into more of the cyclical growth, you know, not, not the high multiple tech stock names, although those still would perform, but also economic cyclical type names, materials. I found that interesting that materials was yeah. the top performer this week. Um, and that's where I would be putting money to work going forward. Also, when I, whenever I see you, Michael, I think about, you know, I know you're big on gold and the precious metals and, and that sort of thing. And I wonder what your thoughts were about the CPI report this morning. You know, consumer prices for the third month came in stronger than expected. The, there's a Fed meeting next week in which they're kind of seen to be laying out this template towards more accommodative policy over the next few years. Should all of that lend uh, kind of credence to the, the precious metals case? Absolutely. And we could do a whole segment purely on this. But I think, uh, you know, gold did nothing for years. It based and it broke out this year, although it's had a couple good years before that. Um, and when you look at the landscape, money, you know, money supply, we've grown liquidity fantastically over the last six months. Um, if you do get a growth. So basically, even though demand is down at the moment, you have a lot of money chasing fewer and fewer goods. You have, uh, you know, supply disruptions in a lot of places so that some goods are going to be very expensive. So even though the, the broad number might be a little slower growing, there's going to be bigger inflation in certain consumer goods. Um, and if you get economic growth, gradually rising interest rates are a byproduct of economic growth. Um, and so that makes sense also, um, given the low cost of capital. So gold would be a good anchor uh, to hedge against inflation um, and rising prices with all this liquidity. The other thing yeah. to keep in mind is that uh, we didn't see inflation, you know, 10 years ago. But uh, the stimulus and monetary issues that we've done this particular go around versus 08 have been very different. They're getting to Main Street. Mm -hmm. Consumers are spending. Businesses are spending PPP loans and the like. And that is going to increase monetary velocity, chasing fewer and fewer goods. All right. So, Randall, let me turn to you, because when I see you, I think about AT&T. <laughs> and I'd yeah. like to ask, uh, first of all, if you think people can count on that 7% dividend yield, which is pretty attractive, maybe too, maybe too high, maybe too good to be true. <laughs> and also, what happens if rates do start to move higher? What happens to a lot of your kind of favorite dividend stocks? Do they become less attractive? Uh, yes. Well, well, I think some of them may cut, but I, I think AT&T's dividend is safe, certainly for the, for the foreseeable future. But even if its uh, dividend is cut, this is still you know a great yield. 
let me just refer to inflation for a moment. Uh, I'm a real believer that the moment um, an ideal is accepted almost universally, uh, it, it's probably uh, over. And with inflation, I'm not going to predict exactly when it's going to start. But gold, for example, just adding to the discussion here, is up about 30% so for this year. But also for the last five years, gold has been moving up. It's been running almost 12% a year. So we see early signs of inflation, and I think sooner or later, that's going to drive interest rates up too, however slowly. Interesting. So you, you are, you're not counting that idea out. In other words, once everybody sees it coming for you, then, then it's kind of too late. Then, you know, then it's already here. But for right now, it remains a, a compelling argument. That's right. And, and I'm not saying that gold can't go up more. It may very well, but it already is up. And I would not be surprised to see uh, official inflation statistics over the next two to three years beginning to move in the same direction. Well, and that's going to make it a very interesting time for this Fed, that's for sure. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining us, talking about some of your stock picks today. Really appreciate it. Thank Randall Ely and Michael Cugino. Well, speaking of inflation, let's look at shares of Kroger right now, which were higher and just turned to the downside. The largest supermarket chain in the country had earnings this morning. They blew past analyst expectations for a closer look at the numbers and what it may be telling us about where consumer prices are going from here. Sarah Eisen is here. Sarah, welcome. <laughs> Hi, Kelly. Thank you. Well, consumer is very much still eating at home nearly six months into this pandemic. That was the message from Kroger. Beating expectation for sales, thanks in large part to 127% growth online as customers order digitally and pick up their groceries. The outlook for the second half also exceeded expectations. Comp store sales for Kroger expected to rise 13%. They are also expecting higher profits. As CEO Rodney McMullen says, they expect the eating at home trend to be with us for a while. Inflation as you guys were discussing, is also certainly helping their profits. And to that point, in today's overall CPI report, we did see consumer prices rise more than expected for the third month in a row, thanks in large part to used car prices spiking on hot demand. As far as food prices in particular, they are still elevated if you look at a historical basis. But if you look at the monthly changes, they are starting to come down for food at home or grocery prices. And that's in part because of meat and poultry shortages. Remember, that happened during the pandemic. They've started to ease. And so those prices are coming down. Also, people are starting slowly to eat more outside at restaurants than they were at the height of the pandemic. The basic takeaway on inflation is it is showing up in spots where the demand is, Kelly, and that is in autos, in shelter we saw this month, uh, in apparel a little bit, even higher than, than the last few months. But the Fed has said it's not worried about it. And what it's reflecting is what is the strong bounce that we are seeing in the third quarter in terms of spending and particularly the areas of spending like groceries. I think the bigger question is what happens next in the fourth quarter and beyond after this initial surge of spending and consumer activity fades along with government stimulus. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, it's really going to be fascinating to, to watch this dynamic between the Fed on the one hand and the CPI on the other. I'm curious on the food price front in particular and what, what the grocery stores are saying, because lately I've had some positive sticker shock at Whole Foods when I check out. I think, geez, like these produce prices are, are much better than I ever remember them being. Um, you know, it's obviously not true for everybody yet, but is there a sense that in terms of the supply chain, at least, the shortages are being worked out and those prices should come down? 
Yes. So, so really the only acute area in terms of groceries and categories and, and supply chain was in meat and poultry. And, and those are widely known. And that was that workers had to call out. There were major COVID outbreaks at a lot of the plants. They had to shut them down. That is working itself out right now. And Kroger CEO Rodney McMullen actually said that they expect those prices to continue to moderate. We've seen that in the data. As far as everything else, yes, higher prices for fruit and vegetables, for fresh uh, for dairy. We've, we've even seen it lately for baked goods and cereals. Mm-hmm. And it's largely a reflection, Kelly, of what people are buying mm-hmm. and that demand. And that's why economists aren't super worried about it, because they see it as a result of some of the con- consumer behavior changes around the pandemic. Also, interesting tidbit from, from the call this morning on Kroger, people are buying a lot of beer and wine <laughs> right now. And, and so maybe you'll see some elevated prices there. They're also buying large packages, which yeah. I think speaks to a lot of the, the way a lot of us are living right now. Yeah, we're doing a 20 pound bag of rice these days and a lot of blueberry Cheerios. <laughs> Sarah, thank you very, very much. We'll see you shortly, Sarah Eisen. She'll also be speaking with Kroger CEO Rodney McMullen at 3 p.m. Eastern time on Closing Bell today. Stay tuned in for that. You won't want to miss it. We've got some breaking news on Apple, which is hitting session lows down two and a half percent. Let's bring in Josh Lipton. What's going on, Josh? So, Kelly, Apple is just now releasing some updated App Store guidelines, which it does every year um, in anticipation of new operating system. But one interesting section here is what Apple is saying about streaming games. And what they're saying is that streaming game services are permitted, but each game in that service um, must be submitted to the App Store as an individual app. So Apple says that policy is in place um, to protect the customer, but that is a potential problem for some big tech powerhouses uh, like Microsoft, for example, that are releasing these new uh, c- uh, new cloud game streaming services. And these are services where you would sign up and then access a bunch of games from the cloud. Uh, of course, in that model, Apple doesn't know what you're playing. It has not approved each game in that service. And companies like Microsoft have said um, that's an issue because those policies that are put in place here would prevent them from launching these kind of new services and Apple devices. So uh, a real basic tension here between App Store rules and how these new game services are structured, potentially, of course, setting up some new tension between Apple and heavyweights like Microsoft, Kelly. All right, Josh, stay right there as Alphabet and Microsoft shares also hit session lows down one and a half percent. Apple selling off as well. Let's bring in CNBC's tech reporter Kif Leswing. Kif, to boil down for us the importance of these changes. You know, I, I just downloaded Stadia on my phone to try to understand what's going on here. And there is just this long, long list of all of these games that you can play because it's aggregating this content. Are you telling me that you're no longer going to be able to use the app that way? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, What Apple wants is Apple wants every game on Stadia to have its own listing on the App Store. Um, So that means, you know, if if you had a puzzler game, that would also need, you'd need to be able to download it from the App Store and not just access it through the Stadia app. How how infuriated are Microsoft and Google likely to be by this move, Kiff? And why do you think Apple would make such a provocative gesture well you know apple apple really values its control of the app store it says you know it's for safety and security so the users know that they're going to have a great experience but you know a lot of people think that these uh streaming gaming services are going to be the future of of gaming and so microsoft is going to be upset they have i haven't heard from them uh today but you know a couple weeks ago they they put out this really um 
this statement that said, you know, Apple stands alone as the only general purpose platform to deny consumers. So they're likely to be heated. Josh, what does that mean for Apple and why would they make a move like this at a time like this when they're already under a lot of antitrust scrutiny over the App Store practices? Yeah, well, so Apple is going to say, Kelly McKiff is right, Apple is going to say, listen, we have policies in place and these policies we're putting in place are to protect the customers. We want to review every app. Um, if the app is going to use um, a payment processing system, it should be our system. The safety and security, they'll argue, is one reason the store has been so successful in the first place. It's why there's almost two million apps available to consumers. Um, to your point, Kelly, it is certainly coming at an interesting time for Apple. We know the App Store is under increasing scrutiny from regulators. There, of course, is that nasty ongoing fight with Fortnite creator Epic. Um, I have not heard Apple, though, budge an inch, though, on some of these issues. Issues. They have remained very firm, saying, listen, um, most of their apps are free. You know the arguments. When, when they do charge a commission, it's largely in line with other digital marketplaces, and they'll argue competition is live and well. Um, to Kiff's point, they must have known this would certainly frustrate some big tech heavyweights like Microsoft, like Google, but this is the policy they have in place. Kiff, quick last word. I'm also looking at shares of the video game makers like EA. I mean, if I can go from having hundreds of games in one app to access to having to download each of them individually, wouldn't that hurt the game developers as well? Yeah, I mean, it's really about controlling the customer, and this goes to Epic, too. Epic wants its own game store. That's part of the reason that they're battling Apple. And it's really, you know, the game developers want to be able to access their customers directly, and the big guys want to bundle them up. Yeah, Activision. Blizzard keeping an eye on, uh, but EA, their session lows down 1.8%. A fascinating move by Apple. <laughs> Nobody's trading higher on it so far as I can tell. Josh, thank you very much for bringing us the news. Josh Lipton and our Kiff Leswing from CNBC.com. Kiff, thank you very much as well. We'll continue to keep an eye on that story and the broader markets, of course. Dow's hanging on to a 10-point gain. Also ahead, stadium-sized debt as the NFL season kicks off with mostly empty stadiums and an uncertain future. We'll look at how much investor money is riding on this season. Plus, nearly millions of Americans could be saving hundreds of dollars a week on their mortgage, but they aren't. We're going to look at why and who's eligible. And UBS is betting that Tesla's battery day will be electric. More details after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Just under 16,000 fans attended last night's NFL season opener after the Chiefs instituted a 22% capacity cap and only one other NFL stadium will be partially filled this weekend for games. 
But there won't be any fans in attendance when the Los Angeles Rams host their first game in their $5 billion SoFi Stadium. So what impact will the pandemic have on teams and cities looking to pay off this stadium debt? For more, I'm joined by Randy Girardis. He's head of municipal strategy for Wells Fargo. He worked on financing for Yankee Stadium and City Field, among others. It's good to have you back, Randy. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. Great to be back again. So who's left holding the bag if there's not enough ticket revenue coming in? Well, it really depends on, on the structure of the uh, financing. So if it's a private financing where the revenues of the stadium are there for bondholders' benefit, then clearly if you don't have any fans in the stadium, there's clearly a revenue impact. For the public side, where you have states and, uh, and local localities who have financed these stadiums, uh, the revenues will continue to flow. Uh, it really depends on a political uh, sort of understanding with all the pressures at the local level to be able to pay for a stadium that's empty uh, is pretty difficult pill to swallow for politicians. Right. So while the revenues uh, will flow under the public side, the politics get a little messy. On the on the private side where revenues are there, you, you have to uh, look at the uh, structure of the transaction to really get your uh, comfort level on what the risks are. Yeah, so let's start with the bondholders. You know, this is an investing show after all. So if you're in, who for the most part is exposed in terms of stadium finance debt and who stands to lose the most uh, if these deals have to be restructured? Sure, so I mean, we, we actually think that, you know, bondholders are t- typically institutional investors, though you will have some retail investment dollars. After all, a lot of this is tax exempt and in the municipal market, which is a highly retail market. But really, the team owners are, are, are really uh, you know, exposed in a certain extent because it, just like a, a house is one of the biggest assets for a, a person's balance sheet, these stadiums are pretty important to the valuations of the teams. If you look at uh, most recently, uh, Forbes released the uh, valuations for NFL teams, and most of the top five in terms of valuations have had recently reconstructed or new stadiums. So these revenues are pretty important to the valuations of the teams. And the owners obviously are pretty uh, pretty focused on on that revenue stream. So uh, bondholders are definitely uh, on the hook, uh, but uh, there are a lot of uh, belts and suspenders to these transactions. We have seen strikes, for example, which uh, typically these transactions do have an ability to maintain cash flow uh, for a strike up to a year. So there are some supports here, um, but at the end of the day, you know, this pandemic, we're not sure how long it goes, and we're not sure uh, yeah. how the going to play out. So I can see, you know, the best case scenario is this is akin to a strike next year. All the stadiums are full. Nothing changes. But what happens if people lose interest, uh, don't show up the way they used to? Team owners are, you know, aren't getting the value that they thought they would be getting. What happens then? Sure. So a lot of these stadiums were uh, constructed with this concept of contractually obligated income. So you have, uh, you know, naming rights, for example, that are long term contracts. You've got suites and luxury suites as well, luxury seating product generally overall. So that revenue is going to continue to flow. Uh, The issue is, you know, the stadiums in terms of concessions, uh, some of the impacts with respect to, you know, workers that rely on stadiums uh, for their employment. That's certainly something uh, something to be uh, you know monitored. Uh, But, you know, generally, uh, you know, these deals do have some ability to withstand it. Uh, you know, going forward, we had already seen that the technology, you know, increases at home have, you know, moved people to the couch yeah. in the stadium already. So, you know, it's going to be uh, something that bears watching uh, for sure.
Yeah, especially if it turns out we've been already at peak valuations for a lot of these teams, uh, which would surprise people. Randy, thanks as always. Appreciate it very much. Absolutely. Thank you. Randy Girardi's of Wells Fargo talking about stadium financing. Coming up, J.P. Morgan wants to make it easy for investors to get in on some of the biggest and buzziest companies before they go public. We've got the details in a CNBC exclusive. And remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in a couple. True or false? Walmart has eye care. True. Stop by Walmart to save and browse top designer frames right where you already shop. And they accept most insurance. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to The Exchange. Quite a reversal today to close out the week. Actually, very similar to what we saw in the markets yesterday. The Nasdaq was up earlier, about the same amount it is down right now. It's a 150-point decline as we sit at fresh session lows, a 1.3% drop. And as mentioned at the top of the show, some big news from Apple on changes to how it's going to allow gaming through its app store. That pushed shares of Apple, Microsoft, uh, Alphabet, and a lot of the game developers to session lows. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for a CNBC News update. Sue? Thanks so much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. Retired Judge John Gleason has urged a district court not to let the Department of Justice drop the case against ex-Trump advisor Michael Flynn, calling it corrupt and a politically motivated favor. Gleason initially argued against the dismissal back in June. Johns Hopkins researchers have found that those who practiced strict outdoor social distancing had one-tenth the likelihood of getting COVID. Speaking on MSNBC, Dr. Anthony Fauci warned about the rise in baseline infections going into the fall. When you have a baseline of infections that are 40,000 per day, what we don't want to see is going into the fall season when people will be spending more time indoors, and that's not good for a respiratory-borne virus, you don't want to start off already with a baseline that's so high. Dr. Fauci also mentioned the fact that it's complicated, Kelly, because we're now going into flu season. Back to you. I know. Oh, goody. Uh, Sue, thank you very much. We've got a news alert on TikTok. Let's bring in Dom Chu with the details. Dom. All right, the headlines right here involving TikTok are coming from Reuters. What they are saying and they're reporting via sources familiar is that China would rather see TikTok U.S. close its operations than see a forced sale to another tech company in the U.S. Again, that's according to Reuters, citing sources familiar within the Chinese government. Uh, This is also an interesting situation as we take a look at the stocks of Microsoft, Oracle and Walmart as well. All three of those companies have moved towards their lows of the session. What's curious is. Walmart seemed to react more to those particular headlines than Oracle and Microsoft did. I should point out that Oracle did hit a record high earlier in trading today and has been drifting lower ever since. But again, according to their reporting, Chinese officials believe that a forced sale would make both ByteDance and China appear weak in the face of pressure from Washington, D.C. So an interesting development here. We'll see if it plays out more, but we'll be keeping an eye on all of those companies as the afternoon session progresses, Kelly. I will send things back over to you. Yeah, plus companies like Snap might be seen as a beneficiary of some of the newer, smaller ones as well. Dom, appreciate it, sir.
Dominic Chu with the latest on this TikTok drama. Coming up, maybe working from home isn't the future for everyone. Peloton impresses, but wasn't enough. The new NFL reality, hot pizza, and even the Whole Foods CEO says many won't be returning to a grocery store. Stay with us. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on several other stories that should be on your radar today. It is rapid fire. And here to take on the headlines are Michael Santoli, Kate Rogers and Eric Chemi. Great to have everybody here. First up, the J.P. Morgan story, senior management being told to head back to the office. Managers in their New York and London sales and trading units were told they should plan to return to the office. Uh, what do you guys think about this, Michael? Uh, I mean, I'm not surprised that they, they want to get the process moving. It's obviously not like they're going to pack the trading floors. These are the very senior executives in those two areas, sales and trading in particular, uh, being areas where there is seen to be a lot of advantage of being up, up close. You're constantly messaging with clients. You're dealing with trading strategies. You have all this sort of data-rich uh, technology there. So it makes sense. I don't know if this necessarily, though, creates this a kind of automatic Me Too move with other uh, offices. I think it's it's right now uh, pretty well uh, restricted to the big banks and trading. Yeah, there's other companies, Eric, though, like AbbVie, um, or Chrissy Fard reported they wanted to bring people back who are a little more hesitant. So we're starting to now see this, I don't want to call it standoff, but this maybe for the first time, you know, it's after Labor Day and companies and workers are, are now figuring out, do I really want to go back? Do I have to go back? And what's that going to look like? Yeah, I mean, for a lot of people, like I know someone that works at J.P. Morgan and they said, yeah, I'm affected by this. I don't want to have to go back in. I have kids. And, and we know in the J.P. Morgan case, for a lot of these companies, it's OK, we want you to come back. But if you've got a kid issue or a mm -hmm. schooling issue, then you don't have to come back. But then that creates this weird dynamic. OK, well, single employees, do you have to go back? But if you're married and you live in the suburbs with kids, right. do you have an excuse? I mean, what, why does the company care about that? That's your personal choice. Why should that affect how you get in? And the other thing to remember is we all were working from home for the last few months at all these companies, but we knew everybody. We were all the same people. We knew everybody from being in the office. You can't hire new people who've never met anybody, put them at home, and expect them to figure out what goes on at these companies. Yeah, I, I agree. It's so tricky. I, traffic is picking up. That's, that's my indicator. People are definitely being pulled back in, whether they like it or not. Let's talk about Peloton. Those shares turning lower today. Lower despite crushing for fourth quarter earnings, the exercise equipment maker saw sales soar 172% over last year as more people worked out at home and ordered their bikes. And despite posting a profit for the quarter for the first time ever, Kate, the shares are up, you know, they've tripled in the past six months. Maybe no surprise, this was a high bar to meet and Peloton's down almost 3% now. Yeah, definitely, Kelly. And they also gave guidance, which is a real rarity these days, and just seem really positive about the future. I noted how often their users were working out. I think they said just under 25 times a month. That's yeah, a lot more crazy. than I've been uh, exercising in quarantine. I can speak for myself. They also mentioned, too, the success of their clothing and that kind of flying off the shelves, which is also interesting because so many retailers are struggling. I think some of the lower price point items that they have coming out, like the bike and the treadmill, will probably be popular because, again, this is an expensive product. It's not necessarily for everyone, but I think it's going to be a long time before people feel truly comfortable going back to the gym and being really crowded around other people and working yeah. out from home is a real trend that's likely here to stay for a while. Michael Santoli, what would you tell all the Peloton investors who are really pumped up about this stock right now? Just be careful. You recognize already what's priced in. Um, I can't say specifically in terms of how many new 
uh, how many new users this has already kind of accounted for in a $25 billion market cap, but quite a few. Um, right now, they've clearly had an accelerated path toward acquiring a lot of these customers. Also built into the stock is that effectively it's a quasi-addictive uh, service once you own it and, <laughs> and the frequency of use would indicate that. But what does that tell you about the total size of the market for likely customers who are really going to be candidates to, to get into that mode? So yeah. uh, you got to be careful in both directions. Yeah, 25 times a month. I think that's crazy. <laughs> that's just me. All right, speaking of exercise, the 2020 NFL season kicked off last night with defending champs Kansas City Chiefs beating the Houston Texans 34-20. to While the broadcast appeared fairly normal, quote-unquote, new safety technology and other COVID protocols, Eric, I mean, this is not going to be anything like the normal NFL season. Um, what are your takeaways from last night's action and the interest so far? I mean, Kansas City is interesting. They're one of five stadiums, five or six for now, that actually have fans opening weekend. The vast majority, there will be no fans, and that is going to be a week-by-week thing, depending on these local officials, what happens. So, so Kansas City having fans, that's actually kind of weird. The normalcy makes it weird. Um, as far as the other technology, you're going to see like those Microsoft Teams, the fans uh, getting in there digitally like the way we see with the NBA right now. We're going to see those cardboard cutouts sitting in the stadium like we see in baseball. You're going to get that piped-in stadium noise, the crowd noise in the stadiums. So the players will hear that on the field, and then the broadcasters, they might add their own noise that we only will hear on TV. But this is going to be a week-by-week experiment because they don't know how it works, and they will try it, see if it works they'll tweak it a lot of the audio they got lucky they had been recording it recording audio nfl films had been for a different project over the last few years so they have each stadium's audio that they can use so maybe it will sound reasonable maybe it won't oh i love how each stadium has to have its own authentic sound and we're all getting used to this but i mean in terms of i mean there's, there's a lot of money riding on this eric but it's just too soon to know it's been one game of this season it the whole thing is going to depend on how many people come back to watch see maybe it's more than norm maybe it's less and what what the new normal looks like for football beyond that well you got a lot of things going on so think about it you don't have the nba and the nhl playing this late into the year you do have that now against the nfl you've got all these streaming services now competing for people's eyeballs you have maybe people having to go back to work watching their kids you've got an election coming up so it's not clear how many people will be watching the nfl that's a big question I wouldn't count week one ratings. Let's see where we are two, three months into this season. Yeah, well, if you're watching football at home, you got to order pizza. And Cowan today says it's time for investors to take a bite out of Domino's. If they hadn't already, they finally upgraded it to outperform. They cited its long-term playbook getting through the pandemic, uh, saying it could help in the help the company continue to execute the shares. Kate, already up 30% on the year. They are lagging Papa John's and Chipotle, but obviously this is the most successful part of the restaurant industry right now. Yeah, definitely, Kelly. All of those players you just mentioned really had things in place to help them be set up to be successful during COVID, particularly Domino's. They're working on, you know, contact as, contactless delivery before it was even a thing. Another thing that this upgrade noted was the menu innovation at Domino's that kind of was stagnant the past few years. They've just added, these are controversial, I know, chicken taco pizza, <laughs> cheeseburger pizza. but. Papa John's is doing a lot of menu innovation too right now. They're really focusing both companies on value and menu innovation and just easy access. Domino's has about 23 million loyalty members. That's the highest loyalty member uh, membership rate that I know of among any of these big restaurant players. And 
75% of their orders coming in digitally. That's the key to success right now. 75% is an unbelievable number. And I remember years ago, I used to kind of chuckle when uh, Domino's said we're a technology company, but they got the last laugh, them and everybody else this oh, yeah. year. And finally, before we go, the CEO of Whole Foods making a bold prediction about the future of shopping. John Mackey telling the Wall Street Journal he thinks most people won't shop in person anymore after the pandemic ends. This as the biggest chain Kroger just beat estimates in its second quarter. They had huge digital sales sales up 120 percent. Mike, do you think this is that's true? I mean, obviously, grocery delivery is easier than ever. But do you really think the grocery store is going away? Because if so, then we have a then we truly have a real estate problem because someone's got to be in these strip malls. Yeah, I think most will exclusively not shop in stores is a stretch. Um, obviously, many people who basically got in the habit of having standing orders and they know what they want, it gets delivered. I mean, clearly that's going to be uh, a growth area for a long time to come. I, it still seems something, though, shopping uniquely of there, there is an impulse buy uh, aspect to it. There's a serendipity to it. There's a let me get out and figure out what I need to do uh, element <laughs> to it. So I think you will have the world being divided, though, into those people who are just like, let my app do it for me and those who actually want to get out in the world. Yeah. Kate, where do you fall? Oh, I, I was saying before this segment, I love going grocery shopping. I find it to be really relaxing. <laughs> I, I never know what I want. That. I'm not really a good cook, so I need to, like, you know, figure it out when I'm in the store. <laughs> but I'm one of those people that will definitely be going. I've never placed a digital grocery order. But I will say just anecdotally, of course, when you're in Whole Foods, you see a ton of on-demand Amazon Prime uh, delivery yes. workers yes. that are filling orders for other people. That has gone through the roof during the past few months just with COVID. But I personally, you know, I, I mask up, I'm safe, wipe yeah. everything down, but I still go to the grocery store. I don't enjoy it. But then, Eric, I find that delivery is not a panacea either because if all of a sudden they don't have the ground turkey you wanted, well, then you don't need the other eight items that were predicated on that. And there's delays and... It, it's just there's I don't see I don't know if that can really I mean, be the future. If you need milk or butter or eggs right now, you're right. not putting an online order and waiting hours or days for that time. You're just going to go and pick it up. So I think it also depends on the size of the order, what you need, what's urgent, and maybe trying to get creative with these recipes. I think these online orders are more for okay. This is my regular set of things, my staples that I get week in and week out. Yeah, just ordering one meal at a time. Guys, thank you all today. Appreciate it. Mike Santoli, Kate Rogers, and Eric Chemi for Rapid Fire. Quick programming note, the Whole Foods CEO, John Mackey, will be on Power Lunch next Tuesday starting at 2 p.m. Eastern time. So I'll get a chance to ask him about all of this. Breaking news out of Washington now. It's been a busy hour. Let's get to Kayla Tausche. Kayla, what's going on? Kelly, after a morning of memorials, President Trump made a surprise announcement from the Oval Office of a peace deal between Bahrain and Israel that follows the normalization of relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. President Trump says that all three of those countries will be on hand at the White House on Tuesday to sign these peace accords. And he said that he expects peace to spread across the Middle East and even said that he sees very positive things potentially happening with Iran and the Palestinians. So trying to point to some positive geopolitical developments after a difficult headline week here at home. Yeah, Kelly, and that to you. has been one of the few bright spots this whole year. Kayla, thank you very much. Kayla Tausche in Washington. Still ahead, J.P. Morgan making a move that betting on companies before they go public will be even easier. We have the exclusive CNBC details on this next. Stay with us.
Welcome back. J.P. Morgan is making a move to capture the demand for private companies. CNBC.com reporting they're creating a new team to trade shares of pre-IPO giants. That would include SpaceX, Robinhood, Airbnb. Joining me now is CNBC's banking reporter, Hugh Sun, who just broke this story. Hugh, uh, how big of an initiative is this? Yeah, I mean, so J.P. Morgan thinks this is the next big thing. As you know, you know, in, in the past, the story of the past 10 to 15 years has basically been companies have been enabled to be stay private for longer and longer. What happens is they get really big, they get huge. You know, SpaceX is worth more than 30 billion. And what happens is the concern is that when some of these companies go public, all of the juice has already been squeezed and for private VC investors. And in this case, you know, hedge funds, institutional investors, wealth offices have approached JP Morgan and they've said, look, can we get into some of these pre-IPO stock before they go IPO? We want some, we want some of that action as well. So this sounds like it's almost a new asset class in the sense that people, especially if you mentioned if you've got pension funds, hedge funds and those kinds of institutional investors who, especially the pension funds, need a higher return, probably think if they can get in sooner, that's one way of generating those returns. You know, I, 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 I guess J.P. Morgan, it's now up to them to prove that that'll be true in the long run. Right. I mean, this is a, this is anybody's guess as to how true that is. I mean, I would agree with you, Kelly, that this is. It may be not new, but a burgeoning asset class in the sense that there isn't uh, as much liquidity for this as if you were to trade Google or Microsoft, obviously. I mean, these are contracts. These are legal contracts. They take weeks to settle, and they're complicated, sort of very bespoke, very voice-traded things. So when you have something that's like that, it's basically been dominated by a few West Coast boutique uh, investment banks that most people haven't heard of. And this is finally the time when a big Wall Street firm like Chief Morgan has decided to to file into this and perhaps make more liquidity in this market and perhaps make it much more of a mainstream thing. Right, which ironically would undermine its potential returns. You know, the more capital that comes in and the more price uh, discovery there is and the kind of more participants to make a market, you would think the more rational that pricing might be and, and maybe not capturing as many of the gains that we've seen in the private market where that transition to going public, companies often see 40, 50 percent of their value go up in smoke. Yeah, I mean, certainly that, that's possible, right? This is a game constantly of pushing out the horizon and then others rushing in to try to get in earlier. And, you know, as you say, the, the gains could evaporate, right? But, but I think there's probably a time, you know, a period of a few years where this, is, this could be something that actually has a, a competitive advantage. And, you know, the quote from the, the J.P. Morgan executive managing director I, I spoke to was basically, the higher the NASDAQ goes, the more and more interest there is in this asset class. And so people, the higher the NASDAQ goes, the less people want to participate in it, basically. Precisely, Kelly. Okay, they want to get in on it 10 years ago. Hugh, thank you very much. I uh, really appreciate it. You can read more of Hugh's story on CNBC.com. Coming up, a record number of homeowners are leaving money on the table by not refinancing right now. We'll have the latest figures and what it says about the state of housing and the consumer overall. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange with the 30-year mortgage rate dropping to get this 2.86%. That's a record low and another record. 19.3 million borrowers now qualify for a refinancing, and some of them could be saving $500 a month. Will the surge in refinancing candidates result in the big refi boom? Joining me now are Diana Olick, along with Andy Walden, Director of Market Research at Black Knight. Welcome to you both. Andy, you've got the figures. First, run us through this. How many people are eligible for what here? 
Yeah, we're talking 19 million homeowners that could save at least three, quarter of a, three quarters of a percent through refinance. It becomes even more interesting when you remove those high credit quality standards. You're talking 32 million homeowners with a 30-year mortgage that have a current interest rate three quarters of a percent above what's being lent in the market today. Wow. Okay, so Diana, we're talking about savings in some cases of hundreds of dollars a month. Why are we talking about refi candidates instead of a refi boom? Well, we're already in a refi boom, Kelly, and as you know, we've been in this boom for over a year now. We were seeing rates of refinance, mortgage applications up over 100% earlier this year. They're now up about 40% year over year because so many people have already refinanced and because rates have been hovering near these record lows for so long. So we've had plenty of refinancing over the last year, but believe it or not, there are still people who can benefit. Yeah, this is a huge number, Andy. Same question to you. I mean, what would it take for more people to enter the refinancing process right now? And is the idea that rates might be going even lower holding them back or is it something else? Well, yeah, and as Diana mentioned, we're already seeing it, right? So there were 2.3 million homeowners that refinanced in the second quarter of this year. If we look at rate locks scheduled to close in Q3, right? So these are folks that have already locked in a rate to refinance. We're looking at a potential 20% increase from where we were in Q2. And then we stand here at the end of Q3. It, it's still record levels of refinance incentives. So we're in the middle of a boom. We're seeing refinance numbers as high as we've seen in 17 years, and they're still showing uh, potential to climb even higher. Is the, you know, Andy, a moment ago, Diana mentioned kind of credit worthiness and that being a hurdle in some cases. How much of a headwind is that for going through the process right now? I mean, is there anything on the bank side that would make this unappetizing to people or unavailable? It certainly is. And those numbers or those headwinds are already baked into that 19 million number that we looked at, right? We're looking at folks that are still remaining on current on their mortgage through the pandemic that still have 720 plus credit scores. So even factoring all of those things in, you're still seeing record levels of refinance incentive. But that being said, there still is a headwind there. You're still looking at 3.7 million homeowners in those forbearance plans right now that aren't able to refinance uh, and, and take advantage of today's rates. So Diana, forbearance is one issue. Are there others? Well, look, a lot of people are just very conservative right now. They're afraid to make a move. They're worried about what it would mean to go through the refinance process. How would they close on the loan, even though a lot of people are doing it in their backyards? I did it in my backyard. We had the closing there. It was very simple. Some people are doing it on the hood of their car in their driveway, but they're concerned about what it means if the process is going to take a long time, if they're going to have to be somewhere in person, sign documents with somebody else there. And they're also just incredibly conservative. It's really amazing to me that we are seeing now with home prices as high as they are, six and a half trillion dollars. That's a record amount of home equity that Americans are just sitting on that they have in their houses. And yet we're seeing cash out refinances very, very low. So people are not taking money out of their homes through refinances. They're just sitting on all this cash. And I'm not saying everybody should treat their home like an ATM as they right. did 10 years ago, but it's there, you know, and you can <laughs> upgrade your home. You can add to the value of your home with it. You can pay off other debt with it, but very few people are doing that. Andy, I'll give you a quick last word on that. And also kind of curious how these dynamics with super low interest rates are affecting the whole housing market right now. You know, I was just looking at home prices in my hometown. I mentioned this the other day, but they were much higher than I would have expected. Um, are we seeing overall a, a kind of sharp move higher? Yeah, and, and we really are. It's been surprising to watch not only the housing market, right, because I think somewhat it's expected when interest rates fall and buying power, which, which as we've talked about before, is at a three and a half year high right now, it's kind of expected to see home prices rise. 
When you look at the purchase numbers, purchase lending numbers coming out of the market right now, we really only saw about an 8% year-over-year dip in Q2. And if you look at rate lock scheduled to close in Q3, that number could press 30 to even potentially 40% higher in Q Q3. And really all in for the pandemic, we're net positive in terms of the total number of purchase loans originated, something that nobody expected to take place three or four months ago. So a lot quicker rebound in both the purchase lending market and the housing market than what a lot of folks expected. Yeah, up against a low inventory. All right, guys, thank you both. Talking about the housing market today are Diana Olick and Andy Walden of Black Knight. Take a look at Tesla shares, which are selling off only about 1% right now. They've been swerving in and out of negative territory all morning. UBS doubling its price target to $325. They expect Tesla to quadruple the number of cars sold to $2 million by 2025. And they outline what Tesla's widely anticipated battery day uh, on September 22nd may bring. They say battery day could unveil technology that would enable much better longevity for a million-mile battery. It's something a lot of people in the market are watching. They say the new cell design could boost profits by over $2,000 a car, but they add that Tesla likely needs more than that to energize shares, which of course have been on a monster run. The stock is trading above UBS's new price target, and they're maintaining their technically neutral rating on the company. So this is a bit of a catch-up call, and Tesla shares are still down about 26% so far in what's been a tricky month. And we broke the news earlier this hour that Apple will issue new rules for the App Store that directly impact game streaming services like Google Stadia and Microsoft's xCloud. Those shares did not react positively. All three stocks falling on the news. You saw Apple down 2.5%, Microsoft down 1.6%, Alphabet lower as well. The game makers also trading near session lows. That does it for us here on The Exchange. And don't go anywhere. The auto sector's been hit hard by the pandemic and the road to recovery will be long. We're going to look at the risks ahead and whether the boom in electric cars can recharge things. That's on Power Lunch with Tyler Matheson. I'll see you after this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. True or false? Walmart has eye care. True. Stop by Walmart to save and browse top designer frames right where you already shop. And they accept most insurance. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart.